This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The project replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Okay, Kev, new show and the replay today is a continuation of one that we've already talked about. Right? Yeah, job big, started. Big job for you, big job, right? That it is. Yeah, that is. <laughs> we had a lot of work going on in the spring, summer, and fall this year. And as we're wrapping up, getting closer to the winter, I'm just finally finishing up the outside work. And this job, I tell you, it is absolutely gorgeous. I'm going to put some pictures up on our Your Valuable Home social media page so people can understand exactly what we're doing. It's an old farmhouse that's been built on several times throughout the past 150 years. And we're just about finished the garage, but the garage is not like a, just a small little garage. When I show the pictures, it's probably about a twenty-eight hundred square foot. Twenty-eight hundred. Oh foot, yeah. Foot square. They must have a lot of cars too. Uh, no, not one car sits inside the garage, but they have three massive garage doors. One big one in the front, a sixteen foot and eight foot side by side, which I believe the garage doors, the big ones, twenty-two thousand dollars just to buy and put in. And there's the two, two of those. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. No, each one. That's each one. Hmm. And then there's another 16 foot around the back. I, as I recall, this house has got like 40 plus windows too, right? Something like that? 56 to be total. 56. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot of windows that we put in. But what was really, really cool is the first time, well, it's actually the second time I installed it. We uh, did the one door in the garage, just did a standard door, but it was the Provia Signet. It looked like more of that mid-modern look with the four boxes on it. She was looking for that specific look. Mm -hmm. It looked great. It was a white painted door. We've done a few of them before. But we just put in yesterday the fusion frame door by Provia. The gentleman who ever installed this existing door before this, the framing was so bad that it was a builder that did it himself. And the homeowner said, hey, listen, you know, we had a lot of air leaks. We had so many issues with the problem. We're going to get a storm door on this, but I know it's a beautiful door, but this is what I need to do. But I, just to let you know, the walls are really out of whack and you're going to have a tough time with it. I said, not with the Provia infusion door so or the fusion frame that I did. When you pull the cladding off the fusion frame, it's got built-in levels. So all we did was just once the door got into place, it was probably about 15 minutes. The levels minutes. are actually in the door. They're built yeah, into yeah, the door, levels. That, huh? Okay. So uh, Dave was on the outside, I'm on the inside. And then we had it installed in about eight minutes. Properly shimmed it, put it in. It, the door works perfect. Probably within an hour and a half, the whole door was completely in, insulated. So it saved a lot of installation time. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. And we did the... Uh, Encode Plus, which was the Wi-Fi, it's amazing. Everything about this door is amazing. So we got done, put the trim on it. They finished the outside. And all, all the outside was was just, once he screwed it up, 
uh, put in the clad pieces that were back on over top of the door and we were done. But the door matches, it matches perfectly. So she took break, it was maybe around 11 o'clock, she came out, she said, what are you doing? I'm like, well, the door's done. It's completely done. I tell you, the beauty of the Provia door, she was more happy that there was no air coming in because it was a windy day yesterday. And there was no air coming in the door. Hmm. I said, well, it's what you're purchasing, number one is a great door by Provia, but number two is proper installation. And once you have that, which Provia makes it easy for me, you're going to have no problems with it. But it shuts nice. It's tight. Uh, she absolutely loved it. One thing she loved more than anything else was the landscapers were there and they were blowing the leaves. And she said, finally, for the first time, it was quiet. Because when you have a door or window that leaks air. Yeah, you've got a leak sound, too. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So she absolutely loved it. And it was a really cool door. Uh, it was a signet with their, their cherry finish. And it actually matched a lot of the wood that was inside the house, the flooring. So, but I'll post that on the social media so people can see how beautiful the door is. And it's actually the second one of these I've sold, but I never installed the second one yet because it's getting a little cold in this area. But I'll do it in the springtime once we uh, get started. But it was the same door. Oh, this carries over to the spring, this job? Yeah, okay. this job, yep. Okay. Yep, so we got two of the jobs because it's getting too cold for us. There was a little delay we had with one of the subs that they were using, and he never even showed up, but it really didn't infect us. But we just needed some stucco removed so we can put some of the existing siding up that was already applied on the addition from the other builder. Mm -hmm. But what I'm telling you, this house looks amazing. From start to finish, it's it's a complete transformation. But we got the Provia doors in, a lot of the siding's up, all the trim boards, and we did bore around all the Provia windows. And the garage, so when you see the garage, the Provia windows we installed five years ago. And we put all the trim around it, all the hardy board siding that they wanted to match from the existing part of that is done. So now we're going to work on the main part of the house and just get everything finished up, the fence and landscaping. So what's what's left to do in the spring then? The stucco, that's got to be applied over top of it. They painted the old stucco so many times, they're going to have a stucco guy come in, relath it with the wire mesh up refinish it so it's going to be a brand new finished coat because all the additions have different stipple effects textures and you, you notice them so what we're trying to do is once the stucco is done it will look like all one house it's been there forever mm -hmm. and that's the whole premise of what she started from the beginning was making sure that the house goes in flow but it doesn't look like it's hodgepodge we always call it hodgepodge because it looks like separate pieces because of the stucco because of the the way the additions were done 100 years ago yeah probably it was probably Two or three additions in that, in that length of time, right? Oh, yeah. Span of time, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, the new one they put That's on... That's the way just, people did it years ago. They didn't move. They just added to the house. And it wasn't... They weren't big additions. Like, mm -hmm. when somebody bought the house uh, from, I think it was like 1800s when it was built, every addition was only maybe a 10 by 8 or a 12 by 12. No, rooms were smaller then. Yeah, so I, that's some of the things, but I will be posted on the Your Valuable Home yeah, social media. Yeah, I look media forward to seeing this. And uh, take a look at it, but we're going to have the homeowner on once it's getting close to finish because she is absolutely loving it, but I know her time has been very busy to come on the air to talk about okay. it. What are the latest scams and shakedowns? Let's find out with Ron and Kevin. It's the Bad Guy Bulletin. Okay, Ron, it's time for the horror story, and we believe we're going for the third week of the Bad Guy Bulletin. This AI thing that's coming down the pike is, I mean, there's some good parts to it. The Beatles, they just recorded a new Beatles tune with John Lennon. He's been dead for how many years now? 25 years, something like that. And it hit number one in England, just like that. <laughs> so anyway, there's some good things with AI, but there's a lot of, I think, bad to it, too. I just got tipped off by a buddy of mine. He said, if you get any texts or emails that say to just answer yes or no to uh, whatever they're asking you for. Do you want information about so-and-so? Just answer yes or no. You know, on your phone. Right. Don't do it. 
because somebody's trying to coin your voice so that they can use it against you, whether it's yes or no, or it could be anything, anything else. If you get any emails or texts where they're talking about something you have no, no clue about, your so-and-so is ready, all you have to do is reply yes or no or reply to a certain bounce-back address, right? Don't do it because what they're, what they're fishing for is either your voice or some sort of information. So just don't do it. I mean, in reality, you could miss some good stuff, but the risk isn't worth the reward of getting some things come through that really mean something to you. So, Well, if you manage your lifestyle, if you have bills, if you have something that's going on, you're on top of it, you know what to do. So if somebody sends you one of those bogus emails or a bogus text, oh, yeah, we've all gotten those, just contact so, the supplier yeah. that you deal with because you're already directly set up probably with an online account with them. So go directly that way. Don't go through that account that people are telling you to sign up to or, or go on to this account. Just click here on your phone. The best advice you can throw out there is be careful. Just be on your toes. Be careful more so than ever before, because all the technology that's come down the pike has made it easier for the bad guys. Oh yeah. It really hasn't made it that much easier for the good guys like you and me and most, of the, and most of the Americans have to, bet. but it's really made it easy for the bad guys. Yeah, They've got all sorts of tools now that they didn't have before. So, so you got one too. Uh, well, you know what? Well, I was out to dinner and I'm, I'm going to make sure my buddy Barry listens to this. You know, it, it just happened over the past three weeks. And he was saying, how did I, as he said, how'd you become so successful and not doing anything online, which is banking online, which I do a little bit of, don't get me wrong, I do. I still want to be mailed a bill. I still want to look at it. I want to review everything. I'm still a, mostly a paper guy, but I do some things online because technology is so wonderful. So I remember we talked about in the last couple of weeks ago with one of the horror stories I had about the place that I use for the, the shore house, the rental property. Right. I use the service down there because on that island, it's all you can use. And they said, I never paid my bill. And I pulled it up on a billion dollar company and, and I proved to them that I paid the bill on time. Well, we didn't have any records of that. Well, I got the other one on the bank that I, and I, it was, I have the vehicles, the company vehicles. Bought one last year because my 18 and a half year old truck finally died. So I bought one and I pay it on time and I sent it through the bank, the bank, and it acknowledges that the bank that I deal with through the other bank received the payment, but it never cleared. They never deposited the check that was sent from my bank. And they did it on both of them. So it was two separate instances, two weeks apart. I had one like that too. I, I said, I, I've been paying on time. I have it. You even confirmed. I'm giving you the confirmation number because it's like a certified mail that you received it. So you received it. Well, that's what I see. I'm on my bank account two to three times a day. I'm still old school. I want to see my credit cards. I want to see my bank statements. I want to see everything. So here's another one I just did. So the insurance company for one of the rental properties that I had, I got the bill and it's... It, came because it was mailed November 24th, looked at it, and I'm ready to write the checkout within two days because I, I want to pay it right away. And I'm looking at it, it says uh, January 1st, it must be, or you're okay. So I'm like, yeah, January 1st, that gives me a month and a half, but I'm still, I want to pay it immediately. I looked at it and said, since it was never paid, it's a late fee plus this fee plus this fee. I'm looking at it, so I email the uh, place where I deal with through the insurance agent. And they said, well, you never paid the bill. What do you mean? I just got, it. I'm looking at the envelope that was stamped. It's stamped <laughs> by the company that I dealt with, the insurance agent. So it's stamped that date. Now they're telling me it's late. Well, they said, well, you know, I think we emailed you. I said, well, send me the email last month so I can see it. Well, they didn't give me any email. And I said, well, wait a minute. If they can snail mail me an invoice that's late, why don't they snail mail me two weeks prior and send me a bill so I can pay it immediately. They had no answer for it. I don't know. So don't how know. is technology so great? I, I, I don't, you know me with money. I never miss payments. I, I pay know. it on time. And I'm that's three in a row. I've never, I'm on top of the bills. But it's not that I'm not paying them. I have the proof from my bank themselves I know. And in, that they in, took the money In this out. case, 
I think part of it's the post office. I really do. Well, this is the internet. Like I, I did through the bank statement. So I went, the, the bank uh, pulled the money out of the account. That's what I'm trying to say is the, the bank, my bank, when I went online, they said the money went out of the account into that, their account. Oh, we never got the money. They said when I finally called, I'm like, you have the money. I'm looking at the bank you took out. So these are the problems that I'm having. So I don't know how great technology is, when it, but my buddy Barry's saying how great everything is when all I'm having is problems with the online payment I, I, system. I don't think it's that great at all. I don't think it's that great. So we got to leave it there. But the name of the game is be careful. Be, be careful. real careful. Be real careful because there's a lot of shakedown artists. Check your statements too. Yeah. And listen, stick with us. We've got George Smart. George is the founder and executive director of the U.S. Modernist, something you should check out. And we're going to be talking about the architects who are responsible for it, where it happens, how it happens, and why people should appreciate modernist architecture. All right, we'll be back after we take a quick break. Hey, Kev, we've talked many times about the importance of curb appeal and the value quality products add to exterior home improvements. Provia fiberglass entry doors and vinyl replacement windows add that value. And for huge impact, curb appeal, and value, there's Provia vinyl and polypropylene siding. Yep, the super polymer formulation of Provia siding reflects heat and protects against UV rays and solar heat buildup for lasting color and value. Provia siding comes in traditional, insulated, and decorative profiles, all with the look and texture of real wood. People often stop and ask me about my Provia Cedar Max siding. I've actually gotten siding jobs that way. Okay, so how about colors and styles? My customers love the extensive palette of popular colors, including dark and bold hues. New colors for 2023 include Miss Gray, Harvest Red, and Pine. And Provia offers a wide variety of styles from clapboard to Dutch lap, board and batten, and new Harbor Mill shingle and shake siding. Harbor Mill is reminiscent of traditional rough sawn shingle and staggered hand-split cedar shake. Both profiles are modeled after genuine cedar pieces using highly accurate laser scanning to ensure all the detail and texture of real cedar wood grain. Harbor Mill siding was designed with the installer in mind, incorporating built-in features that aid in a more efficient, hassle-free installation. The lightweight, rigid panels are easier to handle and include locks, guides, and marks for the installer. That makes for a quicker installation and beautiful curb appeal. Yup, and you can see it all and have the colors and styles work with Provia entry doors and vinyl replacement windows at Provia's fabulous website, provia.com backslash YVH. Check out Provia's design center on the website and experiment with their exterior home visualizer to see how all the different styles, colors of Provia doors, windows, siding, stone, and roofing work together. Once again, Provia delivers on its mission to serve by caring for details in ways others won't. Visualize the possibilities at Provia.com backslash YVH. Okay, Ron, as usual, you do come up with some very interesting featured segments. What have we got today? Well, this is interesting. We're talking George Smart, founder and executive director of U.S. Modernist, which is a whole collection of things. George and I met when I was in Palm Springs at the kickoff party for a mid-century modern event that was held out there in October. George presides over an award-winning nonprofit collection of enterprises all laser-focused on this mission. This is a mission to document, preserve, and promote residential modernist architecture. And boy, he really does it in space. What began as an idea conceived on a rainy night has become the world's largest open mid-century digital archive. So welcome to your valuable home. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, let's open up by asking you to provide a brief overview of what can be accessed through U.S. modernists. Well, I have to say this. I'm required to by law as a public service, that this is a giant rabbit hole. 
if you go on this website, you will be there a while. <laughs> I get emails every week, timestamp, three in the morning, somebody saying, George, I got on your website at nine o'clock last night and I just went to sleep. We are a treasure trove of information about not only mid-century modernist houses, but basically all modernist houses since the style became popular in the late 20s and early 30s. We have documented 20,000 houses around America by the 130 most important architects. We have a library online of 4.3 million pages of architecture magazines going back 130 years. And then I have had the pleasure of hosting a podcast myself called U.S. Modernist Radio, which has been on now for nine years and about 350 shows. What was the spark that ignited your passion in, in uh, modernist architecture? Well, I have to start by saying that my wife refers to this entire thing as a 17-year seizure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was a dark and stormy night in January of 2007, and I was doing what people do in the night. I was just Googling away on random things and thought to myself, huh, I'd like to build a house one day. And so I started looking around and I saw these modernist houses. I thought, well, I really like that. For some reason, which I didn't know, I just resonated with that. And I found in Raleigh, which is where I grew up in North Carolina, there were these amazingly creative modernist houses that I had Never heard of living here my entire life. And my dad was an architect. So you'd think that I would have heard about these houses. Well, about an hour into this, something happened. And it's like that scene in Alien where the monster emerges from the guy's stomach and runs around the room. So architecture kind of burst out of my DNA. And all of a sudden, I was flooded with these memories of when I was six years old and my dad had taken me to these houses that I was now looking at on the screen. And this just became, you know, a captivating, you know, obsession. So I said, well, I'm just going to make a few notes. And then about a few weeks later, I came into contact with some of my dad's old friends. He had passed away by then and his friends were in their eighties. And they said, oh yeah, there are hundreds of these houses all around Raleigh. If you come over and drive me around, I'll show you where they are, and we can have some martinis afterwards. That all sounded great. So I'm taking these old guys in my Mini Cooper, flying around Raleigh like it's the Italian job, and they're hanging out the window with my iPhone, which I'm sure they're going to drop any minute. And we're taking photos of the houses, and we're going back to their house and having martinis. And this went on for like two months. And pretty soon I had about 100 houses on a list. And then people suggested, oh... You should do a website. So I got a free website and threw the houses up on there. And then this thing just exploded. Everybody wanted to contribute houses. People wanted tours. People wanted talks. We're closing in on 200 tours since then. About 23,000 people have been in our events. And we do things all over the country, all over the world. Uh, we reorganize as a 501c3 nonprofit in 2009. And so all the funding from the events and the donations and the members and the sponsors we have goes back towards our research and continuing to both document the houses and preserve them so they don't get bulldozed. Did your dad design modernist houses or no? He did a couple of them early in his career, but, but here's the thing. 
Modernism never really caught on as a huge trend in America. I mean, it never had its Taylor Swift moment, really, where everybody was doing it. <laughs> it, it was always a niche. And if you liked it, you liked it. And if you didn't, you, you really didn't. There are a lot of people that don't like it. But all the architects who came up in the 50s aspired to be Frank Lloyd Wright and aspired to this modernist ethic. The problem was is that it was hard to find clients that also wanted this, but they did. My dad had a couple. He spent the rest of his career as a journeyman architect. He was successful, but his primary focus was on churches and schools and industrial facilities and post offices. And, and like most architects in America, you know, he was never widely published or became like a media figure like some of the others. But part of what we do is help bring these unsung heroes forward by documenting their work. That strange house in your neighborhood now means something and has a history that's important. Yeah, my hat's off to you. I mean, what an accomplishment. The foundation, we just talked about the foundation of uh, modernist architecture in the U.S. It goes back to the 20s. Did it come out in Europe? Because a lot of the modernist architects are, were Europeans, right? Yes, they, they were German and Austrian. The sort of founding father of modernism is a fairly unknown guy named Adolf Loesch, who influenced uh, early people like Richard Neutra and Rudolf Schindler, uh, Walter Gropius. Those were the Europeans that, that came over. But meanwhile... There was a growing American movement similarly. Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, Green and Green in California, Irving Gill, were all having some of the same thoughts. And it wasn't because this idea was so startlingly original. It was more because of the materials that were coming on. For the first time, you had structural steel that was being used in houses. You had advances in glass and windows that could be made much larger than they ever could be before. You had central air and heating coming into play. So now there was much more flexibility with what you could do with a residence. And this became just a boom post-World War II when we had all this economic prosperity and everyone who wanted a single family house and it could be centrally heated and air conditioned. You could have these big windows and the people who really had wanted modernism now were able to have it. And so mid-century modernism kind of had its zenith around 1962, 1963. And by 1970, no one had any more interest in mid-century modern. It went into a hibernation period. And then about 1995, people woke up again. They started buying these houses, you know, for what was a song back then, fixing them up. And this continues today. And the interest in these houses has never been higher. You know, you, you can see more and more houses are borrowing from modernism. For example, in the 50s, the idea of a open concept house was radical. It was like the Bitcoin of its era. And people were talking about like, you know, you have your kitchen flowing into your living room, flowing into your dining area, having a family room all together. That just wasn't done before. And I don't think... Oh, God, they don't have basements either, do they? Well, well, it depends on the area of the country. Like in the South, you don't have a lot of basements. In New Jersey, every house has a basement. So it just depends. But all these advances in the materials and the technology, you know, just really made it um, very appealing. And of course, there was culture at the time that picked up on this as well. The, the magazines of the day all had ads for this very in vogue mid-century furniture. Uh, Hugh Hefner and Playboy invented the, the the Playboy, you know, bachelor pad, which was completely furnished 
with designer architecture furniture. This was just so prominent. If you go and you watch the famous Mad Men series, which was on AMC, that captures that vibe just perfectly. Yeah, I agree with you. In the early days in the U.S., who constituted the group of architects really who moved this all along? Well, while the, the Europeans were resettling in the Northeast of America primarily, Frank Lloyd Wright had two campuses, one in Wisconsin and one in Arizona. He was already in his 80s by then uh, in the 1950s and had legions of students who had come to his school. He was hiring architects all the time. So Frank Lloyd Wright was kind of the leader on the West Coast. He would hire people like Richard Neutra and John Lautner, who came out and did hundreds of houses that are still highly prized and valuable and treasured today. And in turn, those architects hired even more architects that came on behind them. California, particularly because of its weather, was ideally suited to this type of house. In fact, a lot of them, even though air conditioning was available at some point, didn't put it in because you could site the house in a way that air could just flow through it. And of course, most of those Southern California days are just perfect. And many of those houses are still standing. Right in Palm Springs, you have, you know, the dry weather, the beautiful mountain range you can look up at. And Palm Springs is the largest concentration of modernist houses per square mile that have survived. There, there are thousands of them that are still there. And one of the reasons was is that when uh, modernism kind of went down in the 70s, I said of Palm Springs. Uh, Palm Springs was not a place you really wanted to live in the 70s. There was a lot of crime. Property values were down. It had lost its cachet. You may remember that Sonny Bono was mayor, and he was trying to fight things like teenagers cruising up and down Palm Canyon Drive and causing disruptions. They eventually fixed a lot of those problems and focused on tourism. And then when interest in mid-century modernism came back in the 90s, uh, he's really taken off and remained that way ever since. A lot of these architects, I would liken them to famous painters. Probably a lot of them are absolute geniuses. You have some stories about them. Can you give us a couple uh, hints into the way they lived and that kind of thing? Well, architects in general were never as eccentric as artists because they were building buildings, not paintings or sculptures. And they had to be responsible for people's lives and safety. So they tend to be more grounded as a whole than artists. With that said, there were still some very colorful characters. In my town of Raleigh, North Carolina, we had a building, still have it, called Dorton Arena, which is one of the first hyperbolic paraboloid structures in the United States. And if you don't know what that is, just imagine a Pringles potato chip, because you notice it both curves up and curves down at the same time. That's a hyperbolic paraboloid. And the famous Chicago architect, Mies van der Rohe, came to town in the early 50s. He gave a lecture at the College of Architecture at NC State, and then he did what lecturers did at that point and probably still do. He went out with the students afterwards and got wasted, totally wasted. Now, Mies was a big man, cigar smoking, very heavy. The students had him up on the second floor, an apartment walk up on downtown Hillsborough Street across from the university. And uh, after Mies had finished the party, he went to walk downstairs, totally smattered, and fell down the stairs into a heap at the bottom and did not move. And of course, the students saw this and came down and sort of stared at this dead body at the bottom of the stairs. 
and thought, oh my God, we've killed Mies van der Rohe, the famous architect. And about 10 minutes later, he started to move and got up and kind of waddled off. And according to his family, never reported this. Now, maybe he didn't remember it. The students sure did, because I interviewed some of them during the years with the podcast and some of our other documentation. You know, Mies went on, of course, to create some of the great Chicago buildings in this country. His famous Barcelona Pavilion has been recreated in Spain. And he is most famous for the Farnsworth House in Plano, Illinois, uh, which is a very simple, small house that is just gorgeous to look at. Am I correct in thinking that many modernist architects designed one-offs for affluent clients? Uh, they did. You know, John Lautner, the architect, once said that he, he only had clients who were either rich bastards or poor geniuses. In California, you know, where real estate is, a, you know, a form of self-expression, really. People were always competing to get uh, the bigger house, the biggest project. You know, this is still going on now as as houses are you know, being built out there, 15,000 square feet, 20,000, 30,000 square feet. But the myth about modernist design is that it has to be expensive. It really doesn't. Uh, you can have a very wonderful, modest 2,500 square foot house that looks absolutely spectacular, like anything you might see in a magazine. And it can be the same cost or less as a stick built house. It just matters how it's designed and how efficient the space is. For example, in my house, which is 2,400 square feet, we use every square foot in the house every single day, except for about 200 square feet that is our guest room. And that's it. There are certain things that we were able to do, like we eliminated hallways. So without hallways, you have to actually use all the rooms and the transit is shorter. We also, instead of buying incredibly expensive sliding glass doors and custom windows. We found out because there's a mall next to us that um, there's something called storefront glass, which is basically what Macy's buys to put in their store windows. And they're like Legos. Uh, they're very modular. You pop them in, you pop them out. They come in standard sizes. So we had the house designed around the standard sizes of the storefront glass. Did you know about this, Kevin? No. Storefront class? That's some, maybe something you want to include. Well, we do a lot of large windows for yeah. the manufacturers that yeah. we deal with. It, 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 is a, it is a, you know, fantastic way to save money. Third thing was we found out, and I don't know if they still do this or not, you know, Sears at the time had a, a very big appliance sale uh, one summer. And this was when we were still in design for the house. So we discovered that Sears, once you bought something, would keep it for up to a year after you bought it. So we took advantage of this crazy sale, bought all our appliances once, but didn't accept delivery until a year later. And by then, we could already assure, because we were in design, that they would fit. We just told the architect to the dimensions. Is there, in your perspective, a single modernist architect who designed for the masses? Many have tried. No one has really done that yet. You know, part of the reason is is that, again, modernism is, is a niche thing. It's not something that's really ever hit mainstream. Uh, there are a few developments around the country that are more modernist in nature. There's one called Holland Hills, uh, which is in Alexandria, Virginia. There are a couple uh, in Colorado, outside of Denver. The holy grail, guys, of this has been to try to have modular prefab 
in a modernist style. And let's say a hundred different companies have tried this over the last 80 years. And no one succeeded yet. And in part, this is because of the Byzantine myriad of regulations that vary from state to state and county to county. So if you're manufacturing something, even if it's energy efficient, even if it's inexpensive, even if it's quick to build, you've got to put up with the fact that there are all these different regulations, some of which conflict with each other for different places in the country that you want to sell it. Plus, you've got to transport this thing to the site and the site has to be ready for you to bring it there. So what looks like a very, you know, elegant, quick, easy solution when you're looking at the brochure ends up being almost about as much work or more than doing a stick built house with a traditional builder. So that's why most people choose it. Let me bring up Bill Kreisel. I thought he was like a magician. How do you feel about his work? Kreisel was one of the few architects from that era that really formed close relationships with developers and was able to sell them on large-scale neighborhoods across California. Again, because of, of the climate and, and the more openness of Californians to this style, this was easier than, say, trying to do that in Mississippi. He was very successful. His trademark was the butterfly roof and creating, uh, in most cases, a small kind of courtyard in the back where you have a small pool or a pool in a hot tub. And a lot of the Palm Springs vibe was being able to entertain outdoors as well as indoors. And he and Donald Wexler and Hugh Kapter and a number of others there in the Palm Springs area ended up doing thousands, uh, thousands of houses. Again, because of his relationships with the developers, they were able to take his basic design and sort of franchise it into these different neighborhood concepts. When I go around the country giving talks on modernist design, I look out in the audience and there's usually one person in a couple who's really into it. And the other person in the couple doesn't like modernist at all and are just there because they've been dragged there. I try to organize my talk around that person who is not a fan of modernism. And I tell their excited spouse that the way, if you want to convince this person, you need to go out to Airbnb or one of those services and get them to spend a night in one because you can't really get it until you have overnighted in a modernist house. How the light works in the house, the space, the scale, the structure, the windows, the simplicity of it, the unadornment of it. There's not a lot of bric-a-brac around. These are not houses for hoarders where you have every square inch of your floor, your wall covered in something. You know, when I am in one and I, I live in one, you wake up and you feel like you really are in a sense of calm, in a sense of enjoyment. And this is verified by the fact that people tend to stay longer in these houses, 30, 40, 50 years, because they're just so extraordinary and they don't want to live anywhere else. Well, they speak about a simple life to me. That's what they say to me, and which is, I think, there's, real, there's a crying need for that in this country. Yes, because we are a nation of hoarders. To my thinking, millennials, I think millennials are the age group most likely to develop an appreciation, interest, passion, whatever you want to call it, for modernist architecture. Am I right about that? Every age group is doing this, and they're doing it in different ways. You know, people are buying a Barcelona chair to put in their Cape Cod house and because they just love modernism, but they can't afford to move yet. People are 
looking at the modernist features of other houses and trying to at least get a part of that into their new homes. People who are of, of some wealth are looking at having modernist house design as a second or, or third home that they're embracing for themselves. And more communities, uh, which is where we come in, are learning how to inventory and preserve their houses and have tours of these so they can expose more and more people to the style. You know, the, the existing stock is only going to continue to be renovated and, and made to last longer. These houses have become iconic as a class of houses. And the materials in them are good enough to where they can last. This was not true for the last craze that came along 50 years ago, which was the Victorian craze. Everybody wanted to save Victorian houses. And they found out while they were strongly built, they weren't necessarily built in a way that you could put them back together very easily. Uh, restoring a Victorian house is incredibly hard work, particularly if you want to do it faithfully. I'm sure you guys have encountered that. Kevin has, yes. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But modernist houses are, are relatively easy compared to that. And the new materials that have come out... Uh, which are, are much stronger, much more durable, and less toxic to the environment, are helping that immensely. Yeah, and this is uh, George Smart, founder and executive director, and he knows everything about modernism. So can people get in touch with you, too? Please come visit us. Our, our website is usmodernist.org. I am the easiest person to reach in America. My phone number and email address are at the bottom of every page. You just type in my name, and boom, there it is. I'm like Denny's, always open. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that when when I, when I took your hand out at the show, and I said, "Wow, this is like a what a breakthrough!" The guy's got his phone number on his on his material. It's just it's amazing. So, George, it's been a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you so much! What a privilege. Remember the name Probia, your single source for professional class entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing. Products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship. The Probia way. That's this week's podcast. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 